Be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Task Force Podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence, and we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the 26th overall episode of Twin Peaks, episode 25, often known, depending where you look, as season 2, episode 18, episode 26, or what the German regionalization team named On the Wings of Love. I'm your host, John. Episode 25 begins with Harry being seduced by Jones before she attempts to kill him, and then he gets hangover cures from everybody. Jack and Audrey plan a date before Ben sends her on a business trip to Seattle and probes Jack for tips on how to be good. Gordon brings backstory on Wyndham Earl, who is spying on them with a bugged bonsai tree. Donna spies on her mom and Ben. Earl decides the winner of Miss Twin Peaks will die. Gordon can hear Shelley perfectly. Cooper tells Annie a joke. And Annie directs their investigation to Owl Cave, where they reveal a lever that, while Cooper and Annie choose to start a relationship, Earl triggers to begin a mysterious rock slide. So the path we're on is formed by laying one stone at a time. And what does this episode lay down for us? The, uh, the questions that we're left with are... How is the love in the air making changes for the better? How do characters hear the other side see the other side? What are secrets doing to people? And how does Al Cave reframe Twin Peaks mythology? And per usual, before we can answer the, um, the thematic questions, we're going to start by looking into the context of the day when it was made in 1991. So this episode was written by Harley Payton and Robert Engels and directed by Dwayne Dunham. So now Dunham has directed an episode written by Frost and Lynch. Uh, He also directed one by Barry Pullman, uh, who was their most prolific freelancer. And uh, now he's directing an episode written by Engels and Payton. So he's directed all um, all the staff writers now. And he does a great job with it. Um, You know, I mean, it doesn't hurt that Lynch is also on set this episode. And I'm sure that they strategize some things behind the camera, as well as we've got Frost um, really installing a mythology here. And um, so, I mean, from the sound of things, this is probably one of the more complete episodes as far as the staffing goes. And, um, yeah, it really comes out because this episode has a lot of good things in it. Though that doesn't exactly mean that the information is uh, completely flowing at this point, just because everything seems to be balanced. 
we've got Heather Graham uh, explaining how she felt about Annie in Essential Wrapped in Plastic. She says her background regarding the story of the boy she once knew was not made any clearer to me. What David Lynch told me was that Annie was like a finely tuned machine that is very delicate. The slightest thing can set her off. He said that Cooper was going to be helping me, and that would be the basis for us starting the relationship. I don't know if this is true or not, but I had the feeling sometimes that they were making it up as they were going along, and then she laughs. They didn't take me aside and tell me anything, so I have to assume that they either didn't want me to know, or that maybe they didn't know. And it's not just uh, it's not just the uh, new actors on the set or the new characters. You know, I mean, we've got Mary Jo Deschanel who played Eileen Hayward, uh, backing up the fact that it wasn't just Graham not getting information about the characters. That's just how Twin Peaks did things. Um, uh, Deschanel said in Twin Peaks Unwrapped, one thing that was sort of difficult was that I could never know the backstory of why I was in a wheelchair. I remember asking about it, and it was like they just laughed and they said, well, we have so many different scenarios that are possible. So, and this is back to me, your host. Um, this is, I mean, this is just a great illustration how the writers really did let the story go where it needs to. Um, you know, I mean, like they have rough plans. Uh, here and there, but they're able to move away from it into something that better fits where the show is at the now when the script is actually being written. Um, you know, ideas of where things can go is a good idea, but room to dream in between the possibilities um, <laughs> until the answers grew over time from the seeds. And um, it that approach really reminds me of what um, what my sometimes co-host L would talk about how there's gardeners and there's architects. And in this case, this is definitely, um, a gardening sort of scenario. Like you can, you can build as many buildings around as you want to, but you know, it's where the seeds decide to grow on all that, that, um, Twin Peaks really sees as the way to move forward. But, you know, that said, there still is some architecture and, um, you know, it's it's like how there's the uh, the dynamic between Earl and Leo at the cabin. Um, it's slightly modeled after a Samuel Beckett play from 1957 called Endgame. <clears throat> and Frost verified that in a Reddit AMA around the time season three was airing. It was either right before or right after it aired. Um but yeah, he said um, he said Endgame was an influence on that storyline. And what is Endgame? Well, the name itself comes from a chess reference uh, where there's only a few pieces left on the board. Um, and the play itself, it's, it's a one act. Um, it's an absurd comedy uh, with a small cast of characters, all of whom have disabilities. And one of the characters dies at the end because he's too blind to see that his servant is still in the room. And, um, you know, it's interesting to note that, you know, the servant could have probably prevented that, um, by announcing his presence, but that's kind of like how Leo is with Earl in that, um, you know, it's like, I have to work with you. We're sort of a family, 
but you're really mean to me kind of way. <laughs> and, you know, we'll see him, um, you know, ha- you know, shock himself with his own collar remote uh, in the future. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, it's. Um, it's in in a way, it's very Twin Peaks because, you know, there, there are a bunch of people in the same room um, and some experience the scenario in a way that's only alone. Um, which, you know, thematically kind of connects to people like Ben and Nadine in that way. But um, there's also this, um, the end is nigh tone in the play uh, that really fits how Earl's Endgame goes into the Black Lodge and, you know, death to Miss Twin Peaks and all that. But, you know, the fact that this is an absurd comedy kind of play, um, it seems like they always saw Earl in this absurdist comedy kind of scenario, even before he was put in the long johns with the, with the flute uh, comparing uh, reasonably favorably to pan from Midsummer's night dream back in episode 22. So uh, yeah, it's not necessarily that um, the acting created this absurdist comedy vibe with Earl. It's uh, possibly always been baked into the character, which is kind of interesting that, it was more intentional than even I necessarily guessed based on, I don't know. (laughs) I don't even know how to talk about it. Honestly, like I, I wish his mind was cold like a diamond and, um, it, it's kind of hard to rationalize that he's used as comedy sometimes, but, um, you know, whatever. I mean, he's also in it a lot more than Bob too. So, you know, maybe they did need a little bit of absurd comedy to kind of go with it. Um, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, the episode itself aired on April 4th to 9.2 million viewers, which is a zero drop from the previous week, which is really great to see for Twin Peaks. But, you know, that 9.2, I think I said it last week, it's already low enough to earn a cancellation, according to uh, many networks, including ABC. And, you know, all that word of mouth, all that... um pie and logs being sent to the ABC executives during the hiatus, um, you know, that needed to show up in ratings so that it could show up as advertising revenue. But um, that didn't happen. There is no growth. And, um, you know, hence the uh, the cancellation order will come uh, before the next episode airs. Now, as far as how did I respond to this episode? Um, as as a kid, when I first saw it in 95, um, when I was going through the episodes again on Bravo um, and caught the ones that I missed, um, I pretty much loved it. You know, I felt the uh, the beginning of the answers that I needed to know to uh, get Cooper out of the lodge. It was all going to show up here with all this lore that is starting to uh, brew under the scenes and like all the stuff that I didn't know about the lodge. I was going to finally learn. And I was pumped. Honestly, the the more the older I get, the the more that I watch the show. Um, this probably has my favorite sequence of scenes contained in one single location in all of Twin Peaks. You know that 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 amazing double R sequence with Gordon and Shelley and uh, Cooper and Annie. I mean that there there is so much good in in that sequence. It almost has everything in it, even. Even the fact that it ends on, you know, 
learning about Al Cave. You know, it's like it had that that tone shift too. It, I would, I would put it as a contender for if you only show uh, somebody one one scene location or one location scene, um, you know, to to give them a taste of what Twin Peaks is all about. I would almost show them this one. Um, it would it would definitely be in my top three picks. But yeah, <laughs> now it's also um, it it also marks my entrance into the Twin Peaks fandom as you know, like uh, publicly. Um, I first wrote feedback to Sparkwood and Twenty One podcast, uh, beginning with this episode, and um, you know, I stuck up for Peyton and Engels for um having to write while Lynch and Frost are kind of straying away from the show. Uh, I talked about the uh, the Twin Peaks home video releases, you know, Sun Coast Video, like where you could get the VHS tapes of the original series, that kind of thing. Um, and um, <laughs> even, even back then, I brought up how I wish that the supernatural would have been more present up to now, where, you know, Donna, it, the inroad could have been Donna being contacted by the Tremonds again, you know, that could have happened any time in the last six episodes to keep the supernatural in the show. Um, so, you know, it's, it's funny how, you know, the more things change for me, the more things stay the same t- sometimes too. <laughs> but as far as, um, as far as back to the show, um, we've looked at the production history and now we're going to look at how Lynch felt about it in 1993 when Twin Peaks was dead as a doornail after fire walk with me. And, uh, he's doing these, uh, log lady intros for Bravo. And Margaret says the beautiful thing about treasure is that it exists. It exists to be found how beautiful it is to find treasure. Where is the treasure that, when found, leaves one eternally happy? I think we all know it exists. Some say it is inside us. Inside us, one and all. That would be strange. It would be so near. Then why is it so hard to find and so difficult to attain? So the last words all by themselves, you know, to find and to attain? There's a different level to things, and uh, that reminds me of how, in even in Part 17, <clears throat> Gordon's plan that he made with Cooper and Major Briggs is to find Judy, not to do that next level of anything, not to understand, not to attain, not to kill, not to anything. You know, it's like there, there's that, there's the difference in um in nuance there that is even in this log lady intro why i fixate on the difference but as far as this log lady intro by itself um so treasure i mean from a plot point of view it could be referencing the petroglyph map that you know it's like the treasure is after a little bit of work and you know you can find it by following the clues um and, you know, that would be the normal way to think about treasure, according to, you know, a typical television show. But, you know, talking about finding it in yourself, um, it could be referencing how Ben finds the good in him and he can find it, but he can't attain it because he's not quite there yet. You know, he's not practiced enough to, um, you know, be good. He just knows that he can be if he possibly works at it. Uh, and he's afraid that he might not be able to. He knows the ability to do good is within him now. 
But as far as what I really think Lynch is referencing, I think it's how Cooper finds treasure in how his heart feels with Annie and how Gordon's socks feel around Shelley. You know, the, the light is the light was in us all along. I think the way Lynch sees it, it's associated with the love frequency that, um, you know, Twin Peaks has to, you know, it, it has to push through the darkness in order to really be there. You know, it, that it, it seems to be the moral of the story. When you're, when you're in the dark, it's hard to see it. And it's even hard to hear it, too, unless the light is strong enough that you can't help but treasure it. And, um, you know, Gordon learned in this episode his ability to hear was in his ears all along. <laughs> and I kind of think that um, Lynch's experience on the set really is the way that he focused through in order to write the Log Lady intro, because he always focuses it through his experience. And like, you know, he won't read the books uh, associated with Twin Peaks or anything. You know, it's like it's whatever goes through his mind is the stuff that he focuses on. You know, that that scene between him and Shelley would definitely be something he would remember. Now, as far as uh, the episode goes, we will get to that. But the first thing we're going to hear is words from our fellow podcasters at the Ruminations Radio Network. Hey, kids, it's Don Shanahan from the Cinephile History Fit, one of the podcasts on the Ruminations Radio Network. If you've been enjoying this show, come listen to Will Johnson and I fight it out over cinema's best and worst on Cinephile History Fit. Find us and all the great shows over on RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. All right, so we're going to start breaking down the scene now. Uh, we uh, have the number of questions that we're going to look at, and the first one is, how is the love in the air making changes for the better? And I'm going to start by talking about Audrey. So Audrey is recognized this episode by John Justice Wheeler and even her dad, you know, for who she really is, you know, who she is, not who she's pretending to be, not anything like that, and that's good for her. Her scene with uh, with Wheeler, we first see him, and he's in that sweater, you know, the the red and the white and the brown one. Uh, you know, he's um, uh, Billy Zane has tweeted about that sweater, and I swear I heard it in an interview he dropped uh, in for quick on a podcast that I can't seem to locate anymore. Um, but anyway, um, it's that sweater that is actually his dad's ski sweater from 1952, as he puts it. So, you know, it's authentically 50s, as is the Twin Peaks house style. It has an actual connection to Billy Zane. And, uh, I mean, I know many folks bring in their their own clothes for shooting. Um, you know, uh, 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 Sherilyn Fenn does it. Uh, Frank Silva, that's his normal outfit for Bob. But, you know, it's it's got a connection with um, with Zane that, you know, he's still talking about it today. So that's important to him. You know, I, I could not tell you why it's tucked in. I mean, that's just, uh, you know, I was not a fashionista of the year, <laughs> so I couldn't tell you. But apparently that was an in thing to do is tuck in your sweaters back in 1991. Why I really bring up the sweaters, uh, look up the Wool House Boys. Um, I believe they were just a Facebook group, but, um, you know, they put that sweater on every single character. The log lady had a sweater. Um, you know, everybody had a sweater, uh, in Twin Peaks and like, you know, it's like, it, it would always just pop up, you know, it's, it's like, where's Waldo, you know, it's like, oh, here's another meme with the sweater. Um, 
And um, it got so big that like everybody else besides the Woolhouse Boys started kind of uh, fiddling with, you know, Photoshop or whatever, too. And uh, there's there's even a photo of me made by Andrew Grievous, the uh, the big cheese of 25 years later site. And, um, you know, he he did one for <laughs> the staff. And I know it's ro- it's roaming around somewhere. Uh, you could probably find it. But yeah. So anyway, the the sweater is. Um, it 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 had celebrity status in 2016 through about 2018 what but probably the weirder thing is whatever that machine is that uh wheeler has with him you know it's like okay so it's a science device in a, a very venture brothers kind of way it seems to be doing something with water maybe humidity maybe it's a filtration kind of thing you know changing uh changing the state and quality of water probably for the better and um you know it's it's a big deal for theme work of the waterfall and uh, the fact that that waterfall has everything to do with a portal and uh, where the weirdness comes from according to the way frost thinks of how the uh, the weirdness comes out of twin peaks naturally so yeah it's interesting that he's messing around with water in an environmentalist conscious kind of way um, but anyway, Audrey comes into the room by saying room service and, you know, he flags her in and then he notices who it is. He seems to think she's here to flirt, you know, and, and, uh, in order to flirt back, he says via a quote from her own grandfather, which is really weird, um, that if you're going to bring a hammer, you'd better bring some nails to finish what you start. So, um. You know, this kind of goes along with the fact that the guy has a picture. I mean, granted, you know, he was supposed to probably be early 20s when he left eight years ago. Um, He had a picture the whole time of Audrey as Heidi and Audrey was 10 in the time. So, like, I don't know exactly like it. I I don't exactly put it in to like grooming terms because you know he never actually told audrey that you know there was anything untoward i i think he really did just see you know it's like oh god that that little girl she is gonna be something she has power and uh you know like yeah i i kind of think he went that way because of the fact that he never bothered pressuring audrey back then because she would remember that but like he he's got this weird family vibe connection i mean the fact that she's he's using a quote from her grandfather to flirt i mean like there's there's weird undertones with wheeler like i like him as a character but his connections to audrey's past really kind of subverts what the show was trying to do with this guy uh, cause you know, otherwise he's kind of like a paragon ideal of like a hardworking guy who comes up through the system as a carpenter and makes it all the way to being like the, uh, the president of his company. You know, it's like he, he's an ideal in that way, but like the backstory, which is, I think, ignored pretty heavily between these two characters. Yeah. I, I don't know. It, it's hard to reconcile and I hate having to look at it too closely, but when I do it, it ends up kind of taking things down a notch, possibly two notches. Uh, but anyway, um, so yeah, if you're, if you're going to bring a hammer, you better bring some nails. And Audrey responds, maybe I'm ready now. And um, 
Wheeler goes in for a kiss and says, be yourself as he's leaning into her, which offends her. And she pulls back from that. And she says, I am being myself, which opens up Wheeler's eyes to understanding it. You know, it's like he has the ability to kiss Audrey, but like, you know, to understand what that means is finally dawning on him now. And, you know, maybe he understands, you know, it's like, oh, treasure, you know, like whatever, <laughs> whatever Lynch was meaning, maybe this is uh, this, his dawning on it point for Wheeler. So what does he recognize here? He says, you're right. You're absolutely right. I stand corrected. You're a beautiful, intelligent young woman. So he apologizes and, you know, he starts actually seeing what's in front of him rather than, you know, this um, sex kitten thing like the media is portraying Fenn to be. And, you know, Audrey likes this turn and probably Sherilyn Fenn likes the turn in the writing, too, even though she doesn't really like the storyline. She says, what else? Uh, So Wheeler keeps going and says, you have an undeniable magic about you that inspires a plan, a flight at sunset, dinner for two. So, you know, the plan is only to, you know, turn into a date, but it's a beginning. Uh, And, you know, she gets excited by this and says, when? And he says, the flight or the sunset. So, you know, they've got this um, cute banter back and forth that probably would have uh, been a little more endearing had Fenn and Zane been a little more connected into this. Like, I kind of feel like they, they only put themselves into the romance side about maybe three fourths of the way that they need to. But, you know, (laughs) that's, that's okay. I mean, Zane, um, left at the end of episode 27 so you know it it doesn't have to be a long-winded thing that was meant to last exactly even though it seems like you know besides being rushed um it had that potential to be that kind of forever thing uh over time but you know before they can officially um i mean you know they, they basically say okay we're gonna do something tonight you know the flight and the sunset probably um and she's excited about it, but she has to go to the library and she has a meeting with her dad. So she has, you know, she's out of time and she needs to keep going. But, you know, he um, he says a simple yes or no would do. And she says quietly, yes. So, you know, they're both smiling. And uh, from the door, she says, and if you bring a hammer, you'd better bring some nails, too. So I think she's, um, yeah, like, I don't know. I mean, it, it's very clinical the way they're talking about the fact that they're, uh you know, uh, feeling attracted to each other, but you know, that's nothing compared to how Cooper and Annie will be. (laughs) And, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think, um, it could be elevated a little more than it is, but it still works. But anyway, she leaves and he puts on his glasses and, uh, he just laughs looking down like what is happening? Uh, You know, it's like, I can't believe this is actually happening. This is like, it, it seems like he's finally like seeing things in a better way. So the next scene with Audrey, where like people are recognizing her for more, like more of her whole than usual, is with Ben. And um, you know the the scene begins outside with uh, you know a buffalo target. You know there, there's blue and yellow and and red buffaloes outside uh, on the side of the waterfall, and uh, we see a glimpse of Johnny who's shooting them with a plunger, uh, with a plunger arrow, and. Um, and then inside we have Ben, you know, with a carrot instead of a cigar, you know, so it's a snack and a pointer for him and Audrey. And, you know, he's talking to Audrey um, 
you know, it's like they've already started talking and, um, you know, this is him continuing. And he talks about how Jack Kennedy brought Bobby with him to the White House because he'd tell him the truth, even when it wasn't pretty. And, you know, Audrey says, uh, like you have with Uncle or like you have with Uncle Jerry. And um, Ben says, it's the unvarnished truth that I'm looking for. And I believe that you are the best man for the job. And, you know, the Twin Peaks theme is playing here. And she's very happy to be chosen. But, you know, we've got um, we've got Johnny's yell undercutting the value via comedy. You know, we, we've got Ben noting his shortfallings as a father. You know, he goes into that stuff. You know, talks about the mistakes that he wants to uh, change and earn her uh, her respect, essentially. And, um, you know, he asks Audrey if she'll help him do that. And Audrey says, Daddy, I'm your man. And now, you know, Ben doesn't exactly stick the landing. You know, he says, sensational. Audrey, pack a bag, get to the airport. Your plane leaves in an hour. Um, so he's kind of um, he's kind of using the opportunity to butter her up in order to further on a plan he's already got in place to go talk to environmentalists. But um, he also knows that he can trust her with this job that he's like throwing at her. I think he actually means what he said to Audrey. Like, you know, it's it, it he's using it to butter her up. But I think he also means everything that he said about her. And, you know, he's finally seeing Audrey for who she is rather than rather than like earlier episodes, like up through the beginning of season two, where he would see her as a disappointment and like everything that she wasn't. Now he's seeing her as she is, which is good. And I'll go back to Ben's side of it later. But um, as far as the love in the air, the next group that we see it really uh, work with is in that big diner scene, you know, the, the big double R scene in the later part of the show. And I'm going to start with Shelly and Gordon. So they meet when the force enters the double R and, um, you know, Gordon gives Harry a hangover cure. He, uh, he, he wants his lunch to be, uh, a steak so rare that you could sell it at Tiffany's. And then he immediately says, Holy smokes, who is that? And, uh, <laughs> you know, Cooper has to say the name twice. And, um, you know, Shelly's not really fond of her name being shouted from across the room. Uh, you know, she doesn't really care for the attention. And, uh, you know, he says, what a beauty kind of reminds me of that statue, the babe without the arms. And, um, you know, it's some ways to show what Lynch thinks about the statue in the red room that we're going to see in episode 29. Um, and it wasn't the one from earlier. That was the De Medici, uh, Venus, uh, yeah, the Venus De Medici in the only other red room scene that we've seen so far. So who knows? Maybe this inspired Lynch to include the De Milo in, um, in the episode 29 version of the red room. And also the fact that those statues are in the red room, you know, it's like maybe, maybe, uh, Cole is already seeing, you know, it's like, I think everything in red rooms are talismans and associating Shelly with a talisman that will show up in the red room, um, kind of equates to why she is able to cut through his hearing problem. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it helps clarify or focus, um, 
Gordon's particular frequency of comprehension and therefore hearing. And, you know, it comes out in the fact that he can hear Shelley clear as a bell. But before he knows that, he says, that's the kind of girl that makes you wish you spoke a little French, which, you know, is one of the great lines of Twin Peaks. And uh, then he says, excuse me, Koopal, I try my hand at a little counter Esperanto, which, you know, is where the counter, uh, the counter Esperanto podcast, the, uh, winds of the weird um this is where they got their name so the next time the next time you know we we see a close-up on shelly at that point you know just doing her normal thing at the counter and uh you know gordon says hello and she like physically jumps like holy shit <laughs> and uh he he keeps going i'm i'm gonna be saying a lot of these lines because it's just too good and there are details that you can like purse from them here and there um, but you know, he's, he's wondering if he might trouble her for a cup of strong black coffee and in the process engage you with an anecdote of no small amusement. So again, we've got like this weird contractual sort of way of establishing relationships. Um, and, uh, you know, Shelly is absolutely frozen in place by this guy who's <laughs> very intense. And, uh, you know, she looks over to Cooper like, what What am I supposed to do with this guy? Holy shit. And uh, Cooper just gives her the OK symbol. And uh, she's like, you know, like you could you could see Manchinamic's face like just like being like, you know, sarcastically like thank you like you know like boy that was helpful uh, <laughs> and um you know gordon continues the name's gordon cole and i couldn't help but notice you from the booth and well seeing your beauty now i feel as though my stomach were filled with a team of bumblebees and um she just she's kind of done with being pelted by his his intensity and she's like you don't have to shout i can hear you and you know we get the first i heard that i heard that and um you know, Shelly's still not sure what to do. Like, uh, do you want anything besides coffee? And he says, I heard you perfectly. And, um, you know, she, she's like really trying to get him to quiet at this point. Like, I can hear you uh, honest, please, you know, just quiet. And, um, you know, he actually listens to her body language at this point, too. He's like, you don't understand. And then finally he gets quieter. You don't understand, Miss Johnson. Do you see these? And he points to his ears where the hearing aids are. And she's like, uh-huh, like smiling in a pleading way, like, please explain something that makes sense. Uh, and he says, for 20 years. And so this was not from birth for Gordon. Like, this is only a 20-year-old problem. And, you know, what happened 20 years ago? A Blue Rose case, I'm assuming? Like, did is this when he finally started the Blue Rose 20 years ago? um 70 60 yeah that would have been right around the time of blue book when they when they loaned out earl to the uh to you know or 60 70 80 yeah it would have been after uh earl came back from blue book and um you know there, there was something in the air about 20 years ago because 20 years ago was when eileen hayward and ben horn got together as well so um it, it's interesting how they have cycles and, um, you know, the Jupiter and Saturn conjunction is probably, you know, 20, 25 years. It, it's somewhere around then, you know, 27 years, I guess. Um, but, you know, like I, I kind of think the, uh, the there was um, maybe some aftershocks from the last conjunction between Jupiter and Saturn around then where things kind of happened. And like the fact that they put in that uh, Gordon's hearing wasn't as, you know, like from from birth or anything. Um, it leaves room for him to have a story in the past too, 
where, um, you know, things changed or things went wrong. That was smart writing. But anyway, um, in this case, Gordon says, I've been asking people, you know, for 20 years, I've been asking for people to speak up. But for some reason, I can hear you clear as a bell. Say something else. And, you know, she says, like, yeah, do you want pie with your coffee? And he says, good Lord, I can hear you perfectly. This is like some kind of miracle, a phenomenon. You know, the, him saying that he could hear her perfectly again, that's the third time that he declares that he can hear her, which is, you know, like the, there's that um, if something is said twice, it's important. And if something is said three times, it's really freaking important. You know, that that's him saying that he can hear Shelley. So that's that's a life changing thing for Gordon. And, you know, possibly that treasure that. um you know, he's able to recognize. And this whole time, like, because it's been nice, tight close-ups on Gordon and Shelley, like, we didn't know that Margaret the Log Lady was sitting right next to them. And she's like, <laughs> she's like, you are ruining my lunch is probably her attitude right here. But she says, what's wrong with miracles? And of course, you know, Gordon can't hear her at all. So he shouts, what's that? And, um, you know, the this cherry pie is a miracle. And, um, you know, Gordon, Gordon says, you know, would you please ask the lady with the log to speak up? And uh, Shelly translates because she knows that she can at this point. And, uh, you know, says uh, the pie. She was talking about the cherry pie. And uh, Gordon says, I heard you again. I heard you again. Yeah, you know, fourth and fifth time, where the uh, the fourth the fourth instance of saying that um, he can hear her. So like it's it's even more than Lynch's uh, instinctive rule of threes. And at this point, you know, she laughs, and um, you know, she's allowing the charm to get to her at this point. And she's like, "Would you like some pie?" And he says, "Massive, massive quantities and a glass of water, sweetheart. My socks are on fire." And um, she backs away to get the order going and you know she's smiling at this point so she's she kind of feels the magic too at this point and um knows that like he's not just some weird creeper and you know we thought that would be it between those two but um we get one last punctuation for comedy's sake um as cooper and annie are speaking um Annie gets interrupted when Shelly calls her over and Gordon does one more. I heard that. <laughs> and, you know, it's um, later on in the episode. We we know that they are both going to Doc Hayward's uh, together. It's Shelly who drives uh, Gordon to Doc Hayward for um, for a hearing test, um, you know, to test his hearing, basically, to um, and, and, you know, Shelly being there is probably part of the test to illustrate Gordon's ability to hear her, but why not anything else? That kind of thing. Um, and that's what prevents Gordon uh, being at the Owl Cave later on. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's a fairly innocent way to connect those two, um, Shelly and Gordon. And in that same exact scene, we've got Cooper and Annie connecting. And, you know, this is their second meeting after their first little meet cute um, in in the in the diner last episode. And um, it begins on Cooper's napkin drawing and it ends talking about Al Cave. But in between, there's all this wholesome flirting stuff that they're doing. Um, and I'll focus on the Al Cave stuff later. But um you know, right here, I'm just going to focus on the uh, the love that could be brewing. You know, Cooper gets distracted from his drawing um, 
by a bird outside and like he leans really close to the window and says chickadee on a dodge dart and then harry and and also annie are coming in at the same time kind of looking and um Harry says, that's Finch on a Dodge Dart. And, um, oh, yeah, for anybody who's uh, curious, who's uh, not from <laughs> that time period, a Dodge Dart is a car. Yeah, I don't know when Dodge discontinued the Dart, but, uh, yeah, it's like, you know, Chevy Camaro. It's, you know, Dodge Dart, that kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, so they all recognize the car, but they're having trouble with the bird, potentially. And, um, you know, Annie reveals that she's also leaning in by backing up Cooper and saying, nope, oh, chickadee on a Dodge Dart. And, um, you know, he didn't know she was there. And he turns he turns like the Animaniacs go, hello, nurse. And he says, hi. And um, we've got um, Annie saying, hi, cup of deep black Joe, which was his exact terminology and order of it. Uh, that that was what he ordered with her in his exact words from last episode. So she remembers what he was talking about in their first meeting. Um, and, you know, she gives Harry a hangover cure idea, you know, the teetotaling in prayer. And, you know, Cooper thinks it's great and says, good answer. And, you know, Harry liked it too. He says he'll try some coffee. And, um, you know, we, we get the niceties between Cooper and Annie. You know, Cooper says, how are you today? And Annie says, I'm fine. So, you know, it's like when, you know, how's Annie? I'm fine. Uh, nice nod to a final dossier. Also, it also explains in how in final dossier, when she says I'm fine, it's not really what she means. Because she says, I'm fine. I'm weird, actually. I'm disoriented. I'm not sure where I am. I mean, I know where I am, but it feels odd being here. I'm okay. And uh, Cooper echoes, okay. In an almost Dougie way of choosing particular words to pair it back to people when they're done saying something. Um, but, you know, there there's this whole thing about not being quite in sync with your physical body that, you know, it, it happens with Nadine and everything. You know, it's like uh, Nadine's brain and, you know, like the way she's experiencing the world and memories isn't in sync with her present where her body is. Um, and Annie's kind of describing this while understanding where she is. But it, it sounds like she's trying to integrate back into society, but it's also got this more soul level um, instinct of integrating that, um, you know, people are doing throughout twin peaks honestly and i kind of feel like for annie this um this positive frequency this love-based frequency has to be helping that along but you know harry this whole time he's seeing this connection between annie and cooper and um you know annie says listen to me i've been out of circulation so long i've completely forgot the social niceties i mean you asked me how i am and i'm not really supposed to say how i am i'm supposed to say i'm fine thanks how are you and Cooper, again, in a Dougie refrain kind of way, says, I'm fine, thanks. And they both laugh very cutely. So, you know, we've got Cooper echoing her to help her be comfortable. You know, there, there's that cultural way of of um, looking at her being out of sync. But, you know, like she, she was from the culture of the convent. And, you know, two cultures, co you know, they exist in the same world. Same as how there's a physical world and lodge space. And, you know, same as there's fear and there's love. And, you know, it all exists in the same place, even if sometimes you're cloistered off into one of them only. 
you know, it's it's good that Annie understands that she's out of balance because that means, you know, she's able to recognize that the one worldview she'd been in for the last five years isn't always, I mean, that that's not the only mindset in play, and she knows that, and she knows that she needs to reacclimate to the one where we are in Twin Peaks. But yeah, I mean, she's very self-conscious about it, though. She says, you must think I'm really strange, and Cooper says, no. And he says, with due respect to the social niceties, even if you did think I was strange, you wouldn't tell me, would you? But Cooper says, no, I would. I if I thought you were strange, I would tell you, which, you know, he probably would, honestly, because he's, you know, generally respect, you know, respectful of people. But then she uh, she does this like she she's like, you don't. And then she like wrinkles like the top part of her nose, like really near her eyes, which is really endearing and a good acting move on uh, on Graham's part. Um, she says, you don't nose wrinkle think so. And uh, Cooper says, not a bit. And um, she says, good. Glad we clear- <laughs> get glad we got that cleared up. Yeah, they're they're kind of like establishing terms with each other at this point in a really rushed way because she's only in it. You know, she's only. Yeah, she's only in like six episodes of the show, so they have to rush this romance into high gear as soon as possible. So, you know, of course it has to be like nearly contractual like that. <laughs> but, um, you know, they, they, uh, her and McLaughlin do a great job of making it work anyway. You know, they, they go on to the lunch orders where Harry orders, you know, a chicken pot pie and a large glass of milk. And she says, good choice. All the major food groups are presented. And, uh, you know, Cooper does his normal thing, you know, turkey sandwich, whole wheat, lettuce, dollop of mayonnaise. And I've got a joke for you. Then, you know, he goes into the hole, you know, two penguins were walking across uh, an iceberg. One penguin turned to the second penguin and said, you look like you're wearing a tuxedo. And this is when, you know. Uh, Shelly says, Annie, I heard that. And, uh, you know, so she says, wait a minute, I'll be right back. And of course we get, you know, Cooper talking to Harry about it. And he's like, I wasn't quite finished. And, um, you know, Harry responds by, uh, by quoting how Cooper noticed that Ed and Norma were kind of having a thing. And, uh, Harry says, you know, how long have you been in love with her? You know, Cooper says, Harry, who said anything about love? You know, so it's like it's not exactly a denial, but it does seem to be kind of a misdirection from from Cooper. You know, here he says, you know, Coop, you just tried to tell her a joke. And Coop's, you know, Cooper is giddy at this point and says, I did. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I think he's worried about, you know, the interruption derailing everything. But Annie comes back and she says, so what did the penguin say? Or what did the second penguin say? So she was listening and she wanted to listen, even after all the stuff they talked about. You know, even even with the whole, you know, weirdness talk. So Cooper finishes the joke, says, you know, the first the first penguin turned to the second penguin and said, you look like you're wearing a tuxedo. And the second penguin said, maybe I am. So, you know, they're both giggling. And I'm sure most of it has to do with uh, McLaughlin's delivery of the line. And I really don't think the joke is supposed to mean anything too profound. But, you know, it's it's just a way to show that Cooper and Annie share a very particular wavelength of understanding the world. And, um, you know, Harry just says the defense rests, <laughs> meaning it's like, yeah, these two are obviously into each other. So, you know, we to, to end that particular part, 
of the scene, you know, it's like Shelley gets more pie for Gordon and a pencil and a piece of paper so he can write an epic poem about the pie. You know, then we get to see those two kind of enjoying each other and Annie and Cooper laughing and even Harry's chuckling now. And, um, you know, it's like everybody's happy and on a positive frequency. And, um, you know, sure, I'll, I'll talk about how it shifts uh, tonally over to Owl Cave uh, when Annie brings it up. But, you know, I'll do that in the Owl Cave question. More so uh, with Annie. Before that, though, we get um, there. There's another double R scene where uh, Shelley and Annie talk to each other. And I really love the dynamic between um, Matchinamic and Heather Graham, the way they do this. Like, you know, Shelley needed a work friend besides Norma because Norma's kind of her mom in a way. And, um, you know, she doesn't really have any more friends because of the way Leo kind of kept her kept her in order uh so you know it's like it's really cool that she gets to you know just be one of the girls with one of the girls and uh yeah like um so so annie's picking up a flyer later on after everybody's already gone and uh shelly peaks you know asks if she's gonna enter and you know annie says you know the world's weird enough without parading around in high heels and bathing suits and you know so so shelly just asks you know so what's it like being back in civilization you know like making more of a point of like how to uh find out how annie really feels about um being back in the world you know it's like bringing uh bringing the stuff she like sort of referenced with cooper um into the fore and like we really get a chance to hear about it so Annie's response is actually a lot more defensive here than it is when uh, she and Cooper talk later. You know, she she says, you know, being in a convent is more alike than people think. She was way more defensive here with Shelley than she ever was with Dale. Like, you know, with Dale, like she she's almost got an, a, a completely different tone in an opposite way. You know, Annie says, it's not like they kept it scooped up in the attic. I mean... I, you know, we had newspapers and we even had cable TV. And uh, every time I tell someone where I've been, they look at me like I'm out on parole. And um, Shelly, just like she kind of changed her tune quickly once she understood what Gordon was about, she understands where Annie's coming from. And she's she apologizes, says sorry. But then, you know, they're able to get more real. You know, now that now that Annie knows that Shelly was kind of, you know, willing to see that um annie's more than just uh you know out on parole and he does talk to her and says you know what is weird being around men again and um (laughs) shelly you know gives a gives a statement about you know like how you know it's like oh it's not just being in a convent you know she says you know like well you don't have to spend time in a convent to feel that so you know like they're they're looking for common ground and he asks you know what do you know about dale cooper and um you know shelly's like "Ooh, are you interested and she loves her gossip <laughs> so uh you know annie's like who said anything about that which um mirrors cooper's way of talking to harry about you know like who said anything about love you know annie just doesn't say love she just says that but you know the wording is exactly the same so again they have a common way of interacting with things so Shelley says, judging by the look on his face when he saw you today, I'd say that you have a major opportunity. And, uh, you know, Annie's like, sorry, you have it all wrong. I'm not even remotely interested. But Shelley knows, you know, Annie, Annie could deny all she wants to, but Shelley gets it. You know, so we've we've heard them both kind of deny their attractions. 
you know, later on after Cooper returns from Alcave, you know, he's starting to, uh, give a note to Diane, but you know, he notices at the great Northern bar that Annie's there. So first of all, it's a Robert Engels script and the piano player isn't Trudy. So I guess his wife must've been off that day, but I know Engels likes to include her in scenes, uh, when he writes the episodes, who knows? Yeah, Annie's there. She gets the suggestion of a rum and tonic from the bartender. And I think what was supposed to happen there is they were supposed to say rum and coke. But um, there was already a line change when um, when Ben says environmentalist. He was originally supposed to say Sierra Club, except that I think people got a little bit worried about litigiousness. You know, the Sierra Club calling out the... uh, <laughs> calling out the use of their name in this weird show or whatever. So, like, you know, if they change that, they probably just decided to change Coke over to tonic because, you know, tonic is kind of a bartenderish word, even though it uh, kind of implies that the bartender is terrible. As far as the scene itself, you know, Cooper arrives with a message. He says, you know, Diane, Thursday, 9.05 p.m. I've just returned from a place called Al Cave. How I got there is a rather complicated story. It all began with a pair of tattoos. But then he sees Annie and completely stops his focus on his job at this point. You know, it's like he, she, um, she interrupts his flow for, um, his professionalism. And, um, yeah, then he sits next to Annie who, um, who tells him one of the sisters put rum in her tea and it sounded exotic. So, um, it almost sounds like she decided to order the drink, but I also think that, you know, maybe this is what she remembered when the bartender suggested it to her and, um, you know, making it sound like, you know, she had ownership of the suggestion could just be, you know, her remembering something, a connection. It's either that or, you know, you could look at it like the weird memory stuff that happens. You know, it's like, sure, it didn't come from her originally, but, um, you know, now it was her original idea. And, you know, it's it's another shift in things, kind of like how there was a shift in the uh, the diamonds as Briggs tattoo rather than the three um, pointing at each other triangles that was in the previous episode. Anyway, we've got Cooper responding to the uh, the rum comment from Annie, basically saying, this is all new to you, isn't it? Even though she told Shelly that, you know, she has newspapers and cable and everything, and she's not out on parole. Um, you know, here, she can drop her defensiveness, or she can completely shift and go like, oh, yeah, it is, it is all new. <laughs> but, um, you know, she... Um, she does shift gears for Cooper and she's, I, I think she's mostly able to just drop the defensiveness and be her real self around him. And, um, you know, she says, I feel constantly amazed, stunned music and people, the way they talk and laugh. And, you know, maybe, maybe she's just also being neuroatypical and, you know, is overwhelmed right then by all the people around her. And, um, you know, she's just responding in kind of a, wow, I'm out of my, uh, I'm out of my depth here, (laughs) but, uh, she continues to say, and the way some of them are so clearly in love, it's like a foreign language to me. I know just enough of the words to realize how little I understand. 
So, you know, maybe yeah, it was possibly bravado that she was trying to give to Shelley. And um, here she can't because, you know, she's too deep in a social scenario for it to uh, be able to be pretended away or whatever. But, you know, Cooper says, man, I would love to see the world through your eyes. And when she asks why, he says, oh, there's some things I might do different if I had the chance, which, you know, big red flags to going back in time and trying to rescue Laura Palmer before she's killed. Uh, but, um, you know, Annie just says, me too. You know, the fact that that was Cooper's go to move for, you know, why he would see something as a blank slate. Um, you know, it's like, OK, there there's a little bit of uh, hubris peeking through that. Um, that Frost and Lynch will focus on in um, about, you know, 27 years. But yeah, Cooper at this point sees the scar on Annie's wrist again. And this time Annie actually knows that he's noticed this. So she pulls her hand back and roundaboutly sort of tries to explain things. And she says, see, the thing is, I've failed before and I'm just afraid it might happen again. So like the the failing. I don't think that's Annie's words. I think that's just, you know, being in a nunnery for a while or being in a convent in, you know, Christian words is, you know, like failing is just some terminology that they use for, you know, like things like, you know, you know, drinking, you know, it's like everything like that. You know, it's like we, you fail when you I, I, I don't know exactly everything i i just know that that's like uber christian kind of wording right there like i don't think annie thinks she's failed exactly i just think that you know that's just the culture that she just came from and that's the their language but you know who knows i mean <laughs> it yeah it, being being born again christian or whatever she might be like it it uh it kind of complicates how she might see herself at this point too. But you know, the fact that she says, I'm just afraid it might happen again. Like that's perfect kismet for Cooper's mindset right now. I, I think like anytime he sees anybody that he might want to be in a romance with, he thinks, you know, it's like, Oh, but, uh, but Caroline died and I don't want that to happen again. So like, they've got that kind of similarity going right now. And, um, you know, Cooper to her right now says, you want to talk about it? And she says, not yet. And, um, then we get into the contractual talk about, you know, it's like, are they trying to date? Are they like asking for each other's hands and like starting a relationship or are they just like trying to be helpful? <laughs> but, you know, uh, Annie says, not yet. And he says, maybe I can help. And, you know, she's into it and she says, can you? And he says, if you want me to. So like, you can't help someone until they accept your help. That's a huge theme in season three that I always focus on. And I'm noted, I'm noting that it's happening here too. Um, and here it's offered in plain dialogue in order to find out if she wants Cooper to help her. Uh, she says, I'm stubborn, extremely willful. And he says, I can handle that. Uh, some people think I'm strange. And he says, I know the feeling. So there's the commonality. Then she says, I couldn't promise you that I would always make sense or do things you'd expect me to. And, um, you know, he says, Annie, I don't expect anything. You know, then she considers and says, then I accept your kind, generous offer. And he says, good, I'm glad. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's cute. It's wholesome. It's uh, it's like a very 50s TV kind of vibe right there. And, um, 
you know, I, I feel like, okay, you know, it's like you only have an episode after one scene of these two meeting and like, why would they, you know, like how would they start a date in that kind of case where they're both sort of like tentative about it? You know, it's like you kind of do it contractually like that in a, um, it's an overly formal kind of way, but because they're the characters that they are, it actually really works. So, um, yeah, I, I, I dig it. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's as much as I'm going to focus on them right now. I will come back to this, I promise. But, um, yeah, I'm going to go on to some other characters. So being on a love-based or positive frequency, um, we also have a few other characters. I mean, we've got Nadine and Mike who are now much more official. You know, they're, they're this, uh, unified fearless front, you know, the, uh, the, um, the scene when Donna walks in and a check on her mom, um, you know, Randy <laughs> at the concierge desk is acting. He's asking Mike and Nadine and Nadine's got this lollipop in her mouth that is filthy, <laughs> uh, about their stay. And, um, you know, Mike says unbelievable and he winks. So, um, you know, it's like they are obviously in a better place with each other because Mike isn't trying to hide anything. You know, he says, oh, hello, Donna, you know, straight to Donna when she shows up, um, you know, maybe maybe Nadine and Mike are, you know, stuck together on some delusional level together, but they're there together and um, they're actually understanding each other in the same kind of you know, frequency way. Um, and you know, when you have somebody like that, you can do nothing but grow light. Now, Lucy and Andy are pretty much there too. Um, you know, Lucy's at her desk, she's studying chess and the rope comes down from the ceiling and, uh, <laughs> you know, we even see Hawk put some supplies down and look up at, you know, what's soon to be revealed to be Andy. And, um, you know, Lucy knows her Andy, you know, she thanks him for helping out at the weasel riot, just like a certain dick they all know, you know, the, he, he basically just, you know, stays on the job, you know, stays focused on the job and says, keeping the peace is my job. And, you know, he's focused because he's spelunking. And, um, you know, when she knows that, she says, I know you'll be strong and I know you'll be brave, but I want you to promise me that you'll be careful. And, you know, he gives his word and, you know, then he appears to go through the floor in some kind of optical illusion, but whatever. Uh, what's interesting is that Lucy really knows her Andy because, you know, in the Owl Cave scene, the first thing we have is Andy getting kind of scared, uh, you know, like when everybody's telling him, don't look down. And, you know, he's not careful and he ends up losing his uh, his grip on the rock. And, you know, so Lucy had a correct worry. Um, but, you know, he is strong enough to get right back up. And he is brave enough because he, he has this protective streak. And, um, you know, he's the one who ends up swinging the axe, or the, the pickaxe at the owl. And um, that's what gets embedded in the fire symbol that seems to be a necessary element to eventually reveal the petroglyph. But, yeah, Lucy knows her Andy. And, you know, they're, they're this... Uh, a fairly, you know, okay, sure, there's the Dick Tremaine angle, too. But, you know, they're... Uh, they're a pretty unified couple that seems to grow good things because they both want to be helpful and protect the people that they care about. 
So now the next main question I have is how do characters hear the other side and see the other side, which is a reference to uh, something Cooper says to Annie and then Annie repeats back to Cooper um, in um, in episode 27 for her, you know, basically trying to acclimate to the world and, you know, push through any fear in order to try new things. And it just seems kind of appropriate here. We've got Harry Truman. You know, he um, he put too much wear and tear on himself last episode. What ends up happening there is he passes out and then we have Jones, um, you know, basically trying to seduce and then kill him in this episode. But, you know, he actually decides to not fall for the uh, possibly supernaturally assisted delusion that Jones is trying to uh, create that Josie is alive. So the episode starts with this weird animalistic clarinet sound that is like, I, I didn't even know that was a clarinet, but that's what that wacky instrument slash animal howling thing is <laughs> and we see the moose head and then we pan past the books past the injured guard past a whiskey bottle on the floor so we can kind of see how it all started and then you know harry's laying on the bed and we see joe's jo yeah jones's hand and arm creep in through the uh through the end of the frame and so that's another uh kind of disembodied arm motif that happens in Twin Peaks. Um, but then, you know, her face lines up to his eventually as she slides in and she kisses him to, you know, stir him and wake him up. And then she raises up. She's still straddling him. And, you know, she says, you like that? So, you know, she's preparing something here, you know, and she's got a bottle in her stocking, which she rubs on his lips. So, you know, it's like you never know quite, you know, what's going to be happening with that. It seems kind of like it could be a poison. It could be, you know, some hallucination sort of uh, creating thing. And um, then she does it to her own lips, too. So it's not a poison. You know, then she kisses him on the lips to get it to work. And um, then we get Jones replaced by Josie. And then Harry perceives this, you know, due to the tincture, as far as I'm concerned. And yeah, it's not poison because she's involved too, but why? And, you know, I mean, John Thorne was even asking this in Wrapped in Plastic magazine, you know, why couldn't she just kill him? You know, why, why is there this need to install a memory that it's Josie killing him? Is it, you know, the calling card that, you know, he needed to know? Um, I mean, you know, later on, Cooper brushes it off as sexual jealousy, you know, to close the story in an uncomplicated way. But, um, you know, between everything else with Josie, you know, the uh, the ritualistic nature to bring up a veiled veil or a memory of Josie seems kind of wild. You know, it's like there's, um, you know, like we'll see later on that, um, you know, there's this wider world of portals, you know, from Argentina to, uh, you know, to, to probably France, you know. <laughs> everywhere that um you know more than just twin peaks has these access points to the lodges you know there must be one in hong kong as well uh you know you could connect it that way and um oh i don't know there's a little thing about sex rituals that everybody talks about for uh for part 17 and 18 between diane and cooper and um you know like there there's this um there's this strange thing about it. It it feels like there's a ritual in play. 
you know, so, okay, there's the plausibility of portals being in other places. There's the, uh, sex ritual adjacent, you know, death ritual that seems to be happening here. There's, um, you know, Josie's sudden death due to fear rather than a heart attack, et cetera, and her loss of weight. So she's associated with the lodge space explicitly. You know, then you've got Jones trying to use that wire on Harry's neck, which, you know, kind of reminds me of the way that um, eventually uh, Briggs's head is cut off in some kind of weird ritual that uh, Bill Hastings is uh, there for. You know, not not sure if this uh, garroting wire would do that much to Harry, but, you know, it's in keeping with the way the woodsmans work. Uh, yeah, you know, Briggs is the radio announcer, goes after the head, Sam and Tracy, Bill Hastings himself, you know, they all have these, uh, head wounds where the head pops off. And of course, you know, Major Briggs's head is just floating through too. So like there, there's these similar patterns with that kind of darkness. I mean, you know, at, at the time they were probably just comparing her to a praying mantis who's angry about her male being killed, um, actually being sexually jealous or, you know, still loyal enough to the man to, um, you know, enact his sexual jealousy. But, you know, there's all these other supernatural undertones here, too that, you know, it really fits in well with future things if you consider it all lodge space adjacent. But, you know, I mean, it really does seem to me in this viewing, especially that Eckert's kind of crime network is somehow tied actively into the way lodge space works. Or at least, you know, maybe there's entities like Bob who count on people following human nature perfectly. And, you know, according to Jones, Harry, Harry's essentially, you know, supposed to follow his human nature here perfectly and, um, fall into the delusion that Josie is the one who is killing him. We've got Jones as Josie saying, yes, yes, it's me to solidify the delusion. You know, it's like, I'm here, Harry, I'm here. You know, she knew that she was going to be seen as Josie. You know, then we see the, the Josie image getting pushed through by Jones's arms as they snap apart and um you know pull that garrot wire taut and you know it makes a metal sound when she does it uh which snaps harry out of his dream and um you know then he gets the thumb in before she begins actually strangling his neck and uh you know both he and jones actually fight hard but you know harry stands up he shoves her in the wall twice elbows her in the stomach twice uh spins her around punches her in the face so you know um as usual um Battles in Twin Peaks are um are equal opportunity for the for the males and the females. You know, then she collapses on the couch in a way kind of similar to the way um you know Maddie and Evelyn fell onto the couches. But you know, he doesn't actually have to use a uh, you know some kind of second place trophy that he grabbed from the wall. <laughs> yeah, so lucky lucky for us, we didn't have to see any worse. But, you know, Harry's winded, he's catching his breath, and he fought through this supernatural trap of falling into the past that would leave him defenseless in the present. You know, he he woke up out of it. You know, he did all the wear and tear on his body last episode, and this time he can kind of see the truth. And, you know, next time we see him, he's back in the uniform. Um, you know, the same day the Cooper's back in his suit, uh, per Gordon's orders to be reinstated. Um, and, you know, it's, it's on that... Um, that jail cell level of the sheriff's station. And, um, 
he just gets done speaking to Jones, who demanded for the uh, the South African consulate. And, um, you know, Harry just asked Cooper straight out, you know, it's like, why would Eckert want me dead? And Cooper says, sexual jealousy. And then he takes a minute and goes, oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Cooper pats him on the back. Mm hmm. And like this, this little, uh, this little well-acted capper to, to give us a chuckle, you know, it's good to have you back, Harry. And we all agree. And that's the end of that storyline. And Jones, you know, she might be down there for, you know, the rest of the series waiting for the South African consulate, but nobody's ever going to tell us. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we're not supposed to think about it anymore. We're not even supposed to wonder if Jones gets out of that cell. You know, there's no there's um no need to do anything but move forward and then harry says no rest is needed just coffee maybe some food and yeah it's closed off and then the only thing left for harry to do this episode is the epilogue part where he purges the damage he did to his body with all that booze uh last episode with a matter of three hangover cures and the first two are physical uh Hangover cure number one was right there in the jail cell area where, um, you know, like right after the scene I just described, um, Cooper talks about, you know, the uh, surefire cure for a hangover. Take a glass of frozen, nearly unstrained tomato juice. You pop a couple of oysters in there. You drink it down deep, uh, breathe deep. Uh, next, next, you take a mound, and I mean a mound of sweet bread, saute them with some chestnuts and some Canadian bacon, finally biscuits, big biscuits, smothered in gravy, and here is where it gets tricky. You're going to need some anchovies. And then this is when Harry, hearing all of this combination of random foods that are kind of tough to eat, um, makes him run to the bathroom, and Cooper smiles and says, that should do it. So, you know, the FBI way is to... Uh, purge the stomach as quickly as possible and we got hangover cure number two gordon is uh talking to harry when they arrive at the double r he he basically says meat and plenty of it you break an egg on it and and and, you know salted anchovies tabasco worcestershire sauce and uh you know harry's back on his way to the bathroom as gordon says if you want we could order some up for you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh you know then gordon and cooper share a matching smile and uh you know the thumbs up to each other for a job well done <laughs> and then after after his body's all cleaned out um we get the third edition of a hangover cure where um you know annie annie basically says while she's uh getting ready to take their orders um she she suggests teetotaling and prayer and cooper says good answer and harry liked it too and said i'll try some coffee <laughs> which you know is the um the entryway into you know clearer thought and uh you know smarter intuition and you know now that he's now that harry is done with the hangover mini plot line in the episode he now is able to see the love that cooper and annie seem to be growing successfully says how long have you been in love with her and you know he's able to go into owl cave with the others and effectively locate their destination though and you know this is this is before his um his you know two trips to the bathroom to purge all his alcohol um there is this thing where he lets his memory of josie cloud over how that bonsai tree got into his office you know he did believe that josie gave him a gift at the end um and that bonsai tree being in the office um it um 
it kind of hurts their Earl related investigation as they go on. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of just like how Catherine was thinking that Eckhart must have given her a gift at the end, like a victory trophy or something. And, um, that ends up causing trouble for her and her family members as that puzzle box gets open. Yeah. The, um, the Eckhart revenge scheme kind of, uh, got piggybacked on by Wyndham Earl. <laughs> and, um, yeah. So, you know, here he's, here he's in a much better place and he's growing through a lot of his trouble, but you know, there's still a little bit hanging on that's going to hurt him in the end a little. And now we're on to Ben Horn who, um, you know, obviously he's had a go of it and he's, he's at the point where he's trying to push through all his past and learn to be good. So, you know, the, the first way he does it, you know, he's connecting with Audrey. He's, um, getting her to be the man for the job, to be his Bobby Kennedy. And, um, you know, like I said earlier, you know, Audrey's kind of the only choice for the job because, you know, we have Jerry offering only varnish truth. You know, Dwayne Dunham, the director, he knew about the Johnny Horn footage, you know, shooting the Buffalo targets uh, that existed from the pilot. It's kind of like how he reused the um, the footage of James, you know, driving on the bike for a long time in episode 18 and in, in uh, Dunham's previous episode. Um, you know, he's repurposing some of the pilot here, too, to, um, you know, have Johnny and his yell used for a level of comedy to this. And, you know, I mean, it, it's further proof that Audrey is not only the best man for the job, she's the only choice, but, you know, it also adds a laugh for us as we listen to his, you know, Tarzan yells. And um, it also kind of adds a level of, you know, Johnny Horn is a product of your upbringing as well. But, you know, even so, Audrey's really happy to be chosen by Ben. And, um, you know, Ben really is learning to be good and hold himself accountable for his previous behaviors. And um, he tells her, Audrey, I know I haven't been a very good father. Oh, hell, who am I kidding? When have I ever been anything but a sleazy, rapacious heel? And, you know, then she says, well, Daddy, maybe when I was little. But, and, you know, then he interrupts her. But, you know, when she was little, like maybe when she was 10 and he was still mentoring Wheeler, um, you know, I could see him being a little bit better back then. And he says, exactly, I've changed and I'm determined to be a better person. The, uh, the kind of father that you will respect someday. And, you know, he, at this point, understands the change takes time and perception takes time to change, too. Then he, then he invokes Laura's name and he says, when I think about Laura, when I think about the mistakes that I've made, I want to build a life in happiness. So, you know, we've got the intent for a positive frequency stuff while he's living and noticing that he's in the present right now and has a chance to, you know, do something positive. And then he says, for our whole family, you, me. And then he stops because he doesn't mention Johnny, who's howling in the background, and or Jerry or Sylvia. Um, and then, you know, he continues and says, will you help me do that, please? And, you know, he asks her, he asks her permission to do this. And, uh, you know, that's when she says, Daddy, I'm your man. And then he says, sensational, pack up your bag and get out to the airport. Your plane leaves in an hour. So he still doesn't know how to work with people on their own schedules or their own um, ability to understand. You know, she tries to say it's too short notice. Uh, you know, in comes 
uh, Wheeler. And, you know, they both learn at the same time, essentially, that Audrey's on her way to Seattle for a confab with the environmentalists because we're going national with this tap, tap, tap on his button, pine weasel thing. And, you know, Audrey tries to buy more time, but Ben is steamrolling and he says, you bring us back good news. So, yeah, um, he's not all the way through his previous behaviors because, you know, he's using he's using their understanding in a way that um, is a tool for him to, you know, enact his plan in a in a more positive direction. Sure. But he's kind of using Audrey as a tool to get that done at this point. So, you know, he's still got work to do. But in the same scene that I was just talking about, it shifts over to being a scene between Wheeler and Ben because, you know, Audrey leaves. And, um, you know, then they're sitting on opposite ends of the couch. Um, and, um, you know, Wheeler basically asks him, you know, like, how are you, Ben? And um, we get Ben's current philosophy where he says, I am filled to the brim with the feeling of goodness, like a Christmas tree all lit up inside. But then, you know, he moves to the center cushion and he faces uh, Wheeler in a, you know, crisscross leg style. And he says, but at the end of the day, when I look in the mirror and, you know, I'm noting mirror as a theme (laughs) repeating here where you can see your darker side if you have one. um, he, He continues to say, I have to face the fact that I really don't know how to be good. So, you know, he has the want, he has the intention, and, you know, none of the know-how how to understand how to do it. You know, that's um, that's a hardest truth first that he's telling Wheeler here. But, you know, he doesn't tell Audrey all of the the hardest truths first. You know, he, uh, he just does that with his male friend, um, John Justice Wheeler. But, you know, whatever. I mean, that's that's also... 1991 for you um but anyway um john says you're off to a pretty fair start and um you know ben just asks him straight out how do you do it john what's the secret do you really think that i could learn to be good and you know we have an observer right here in the room with him saying i don't see why not just keep an eye on your heart and always tell the truth which you know bringing up the truth so explicitly here reminds me of how in the secret history of Twin Peaks, you know, there's this big, there's this big and a big line in the sand between secrets and mysteries. Secrets are what you get when you're not telling the truth. And uh, mysteries are what you can, what you can use to grow if you are in the truth. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, Ben repeats him and says, always tell the hardest truth first. Or I mean, Ben, <laughs> Ben repeats the first part and then says, and then Wheeler says, always tell the hardest truth first. And, um, you know, Ben repeats that. And, you know, he says, I love that this truth business, it's clearly at the forefront of business. And, um, you know, he's using business for like his own internal growth, but, you know, using the words of, you know, his trade in the world. Um, and, you know, John, at this point, takes the opportunity to say, Ben, I'm falling in love with your daughter. And Ben says, yeah, that's a hard truth. Good example. And, you know, points the carrot he's eating. And John says, it is the truth. And, um, you know, it is. Yeah. And Ben smiles and gets a carrot out for John. And he says, oh, John, well, 
what a wonderful world we live in. And, you know, they both chomp on carrots while Johnny cries out in the background. And uh, it's a really fun scene. Um, Though, you know, like I said, he's still using goodness as a weapon rather than a tool or using it more like a weapon than a tool because, you know, he just broke up, you know, John and Audrey's date um, and, you know, doesn't necessarily consider other family members. You know, it's almost like uh, because he and Audrey are both on this similar like minded, uh, similar frequency, maybe path um, of growth. Uh, maybe, maybe Ben can't see any other family members besides the one on his path. All right. So that pretty much wraps up that big question. So the next question is what are secrets doing to people? And we are back to Ben because you know how he is with Eileen and Donna this episode, you know, we, we have, uh, we have Ben's other side, you know, he's, he's still trying to alleviate you know, the bad that he sees on his own conscience. But, you know, like, like I said with Audrey, and it's like, all he had to do is ask a couple more questions. You know, it's like, what do you have planned today? Um, do you have the ability to go to the, uh, Seattle meeting that I've already scheduled or do we need to work around something? Um, you know, just like that, he's basically just going out for his own conscience. Uh, by trying to um, reveal Donna's parentage. Um, And, you know, he's essentially going to destroy the official version that the past has uh, set in stone and bringing the unofficial version into the light so that everybody has a chance to understand the big truth. You know, it's like this is a really twisted way to say the uh, hardest truth first, honestly. Um, But, uh, you know, by that I am talking about how Everyone in the show gets this close to saying how Ben Horn and Eileen Hayward are Donna's parents. And, you know, it's now tearing Ben up because, you know, his daughter has been without her father, you know, not understanding necessarily that Will has been admirably fine uh, filling in for him in this field. (laughs) But, um, you know, Ben doesn't pay attention to how the big truth is going to affect people. You know, it's like this reveal is going to destroy reality for Donna, who, you know, so far in Twin Peaks has had nothing but identity struggles in this show. You know, she starts out by, you know, answering the question, who am I to people? And, you know, you know, putting on vamp Donna, you know, it's like everything. You know, she's trying to be other Donnas, you know, looking for herself. And, you know, it finally shifts into who do I want to be for me? when she's, um, you know, letting James go. Um, and, you know, it seems like she's finally on that path where she wants to do that. But, you know, now it's soon to be, who the hell am I? Because, you know, that secret, you know, has redefined her into, you know, essentially she's been living under a lie her whole life. And um, that would be a little upending. (laughs) So, you know, it's like there's ways to do it, Ben, that would be more compassionate to others. And, you know, we first see this play out uh, here at the Great Northern where Donna gets out of this old pink uh, 50s station wagon uh, tailing her mom who meets Ben at the end of the hallway in the Great Northern. And, um, you know, that pink car, I bet it's either Dwayne Dunham's or David Lynch's. You know, they're both car guys. Uh, They both like to include cool looking things into the show visuals that they're working on. 
Yeah, like I, I think uh, Dunham even said in the uh, season one commentaries on the Artisan DVD set that, um, you know, he's he's included his own car in the show before. So I wouldn't be shocked if that's Dunham's car rather than the Haywards. But, you know, like while Donna's uh, at the concierge desk bumping into Mike and Nadine, she's actually there to ask Audrey, you know, do you have any reason why my mom's visiting your dad? And, you know, it's they they figure out it's probably not stop Ghostwood. So, um, yeah, they they decide to possibly or they're, they're curious about it. And we get to shift over to what's happening in Ben's office. And, you know, it's mid conversation where, you know, Ben says, no, I won't accept them because, you know, Eileen's brought a bunch of been written letters to her we're assuming that's what this is um and you know eileen says i don't want them i won't have them in my house anymore and he says you've had them in your house for 20 years why now you know like why couldn't she just throw them out honestly it's like the the reason why she didn't just throw them in the garbage is because she wanted ben to know that you know she's delivering him basically a cease and desist message and um you know, that she she wants to know why as well. You know, it's like she, she tells Ben, that's what I'm asking of you. Why now? You'll only succeed in ripping apart old wounds. I can't bear the thought of it. So, you know, Ben knows he's changed, but wishes people would also see that change. And, you know, he's essentially confused by why people won't see him as anything other than his past behaviors. And, you know, why don't we all help him grow the light? But, you know, then, you know, he um, he doesn't recognize how he is with people still. Um, he's halfway there, but not all the way. Um, you know, he gets down right next to her by the fireplace, says her name twice. Um, you know, like, why don't you believe me? And, you know, words aren't good enough from him. Um, and then he says, I want my actions to speak for me. And I have been wrong all these years. I'm trying to make up for it, even though he's not acknowledging that, like, maybe other people here um, might be taking all his previous actions into account. And, um, you know, Eileen says sometimes making up for things only make it worse. Um, but, you know, now we get Ben's other angle where, you know, he wants to reverse time and start all over back from that point. And he says, you should have been the best thing that ever happened to me. And then he says, I haven't held you since that night. And, you know, she says, don't here. And he says, I want to hold you. I want to go back. You know, taking taking a bit of a tangent here for a moment, I want to go back is similar to what Cooper does in part 17 when he's heading back into the fire walk with me uh, dream sequence with Laura. Uh, you know, it can't be done. Any attempt to force the past to change will just break everything involved in the story that's happened and grown roots since then. You know, the the seeds are now too grown in to really just be wiped away by whatever you want. You know, also going back, you know, 20 years ago um, is is um, him not being with Eileen, the event that begins Ben uh, beginning to change for the worse. Um, you know, John Justice Wheeler didn't leave town until about eight years ago, and it seems like Ben's still at Gooden and then. So I'm beginning to feel like. Ben's a little bit like, you know, Michael from The Godfather, where, you know, he, I mean, obviously he's more fun loving and willing to go into the darker sides of the horn industries. But, you know, it's like he could have been a better person at one point and then, you know, just kind of 
grown into the uh, dealing in the negative stuff businessman that he ends up becoming for the series. But, you know, right here, we just still have been, um, you know, trying to go back to the event where he and Eileen are the ones together. And, um, you know, he's trying to do something about it well after he should just be holding himself accountable for the choices that he made in the other direction. But, you know, we get Ben getting handsy with her now and, you know, pressuring her. And, you know, it's like maybe maybe he'll try to convince her, kind of like how Nadine convinced Mike through that kiss at the double R that, um, you know, seemed assault adjacent. And, um, you know, then she yells, please don't, and wheels forward a bit. And, um, you know, Ben actually does apologize here. You know, it's like he might not be accountable for how the past few weeks went, um, you know, as a Civil War general, but he is trying to be accountable for what he is doing right now. Um, So, you know, again, like like Wheeler said, it's a good start, but he's got a lot to go. So, you know, all that solid information that we get, um, Donna and Audrey do not get because, you know, they only start spying at this point. Um, you know, that, that spying panel inside the walls, you know, um, Audrey invited Donna into that sanctum right here. And, um, you know, so like, as we're kind of beginning to wonder, it's like, holy crap, these two are sisters. Um, you know, it's like, we, we see them kind of growing together organically, which is neat, but you know, it's like they hear what should have been context for what we just heard. And, um, you know, it's it's too little context for them to know what they're talking about. You know, Ben says, you know, have you told her? And she says, God, no, never. I never will. You must promise me the same. You must ne- you mustn't come over again. And, um, you know, it <laughs> makes me think because she's got a husband who's going to punch him into a fireplace if Ben actually does get there. Um, and uh, he says, you must stay away from her. And, you know, that means Donna to us. But, you know, the, Donna and Audrey don't know that. Then, you know, this whole time, you know, he's stroking her hair and he says, I understand. And she says, I hope you do. And wheels away. You know, Ben's there all pensive, still in the spy hole view. And Audrey covers the hole and says, what the hell was that? And Donna says, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. (laughs) So, you know, we've got Donna finally locking onto a new mystery plot, um, you know, possibly becoming a duo with Audrey for real this time. But, you know, the mystery actually has no teeth for us viewers since we basically just got the answer. It loses the ability to be compelling. And, um, you know, sadly, you know, compelling or not, it takes Donna five episodes uh, for her to confront her parents on the secret that we just learned here, um, you know, two minutes before she got there. And, you know, her true parentage actually never gets officially confirmed not even in final dossier it's it's um you know it's that unspoken kind of secret that everybody in small towns knows about but would never talk about to anybody on the outside um you know it would have it would have probably been more compelling for donna um if we saw her grappling with the truth um in a couple episodes and you know maybe watch her and Audrey redefining their relationship and, you know, giving us the answer, you know, give, giving us the answer before she gets the, the answer, you know, before her mystery plot line has even officially begun. Um, you know, it, it's kind of a weird choice. Now, as far as other secrets, you know, sure. There's the, the secrets of, um, 
you know, Thomas Eckert, you know, however supernatural or not, you know, that those secrets almost killed Harry here. They're going to um, use Catherine's curiosity against her with that puzzle box. Um, you know, these kind of secrets are weapons aimed at enemies. And um, more than that, you know, it's like we've got Wyndham Earl's secrets, too. You know, they're weapons, too. Um, but, you know, they the the secrets that Wyndham Earl is growing is progressively hurting any people in and around Twin Peaks more and more as uh, Earl embeds into this town. And the first way we see his secrets in action are, you know, his spying and his planning. Um, you know, when that bonsai tree shows up, um, that that subplot basically starts in Harry's office before Earl even, you know, before Harry even gets there. Um, you know, Doc says, uh, Doc Hayward's there. He says, the bonsai tree, the ultimate miniature. And uh, Cooper says, bicarbonate of soda, the ultimate digestive aid. And, you know, they smile at each other. Uh, he hands, and then Cooper hands that glass of, uh, you know, bicarbonate of soda to Harry, uh, who's holding a towel to his head. And, um, you know, the, he he reads a note. You know, the bonsai was just delivered this morning, and he says it's from Josie. So, you know, we learn fairly quickly after that that, you know, thanks to a, a cutscene to a soundboard's red bar that's bouncing every time uh, Cooper, Harry, and Doc Hayward are speaking, um, that Earl's in his cabin listening to everything that they're saying and that there's a, you know, a bug in the bonsai tree. So what does Earl learn? Well, um, Doc Hayward lets Harry know that Wyndham Earl was at his house that um the chess piece um you know is the the chess piece move has been handed over to the law and then um earl knows that gordon cole arrives and you know you could probably hear gordon arriving from the hallway and um you know gordon cole is there fresh from bend oregon which he left for at the very beginning of episode 14 so that's 10 episodes between appearances there and um you know, Gordon comes bringing class the classified portion from Wyndham Earl's dossier here. Um, and, you know, Earl's at his laptop suitcase set up uh, with Leo next to him. And he says, this is so galling, Leo. Young Dale is continuing to refuse to play fair. And then while we get some backstory on Wyndham Earl, Wyndham Earl also knows what backstory is now available to the law. And, um... You know, Gordon starts out, when Earl went boy-yoing, the doctors discovered he was on Paradol, which uh, Doc Hayward confirms right then that uh, Philip Gerard used it too. You know, Gordon continues saying, they suspect he was using the drug to fake his illness, just as you suspected, Coop. Definite schizoid maneuvering. And, um, you know, it confirms why Cooper couldn't verify that Earl was faking his illness all these years. The uh, The conclusions for that we're in a classified file in these documents that finally just got declassified. And, um, or at least, you know, for Gordon. And, um, you know, about the haloperidol, Gerard used it to suppress his connection to the Lodge denizens, or, you know, at least to Mike. Um, he could operate as a human being, and, you know, there, it's like a divider between the world and the Lodge space. And if Earl is using it, um, you know, maybe he was trying to suppress a Bob-like presence, or maybe even Bob. Um, you know, unlikely, 
since you know bob was probably with leland at the time unless you know bob really can be in more than one person but you know that hadn't been established yet you know or you know maybe maybe it's also that if earl actually doesn't have you know some kind of lodge spirit within him um it does the effect in reverse and makes a connection you know um reversing the outcome because you know because the logic is reversed the outcome is absolutely reversed too kind of like an alternating current line of electricity um kind of like how lodge speak is backwards to people who are maybe just dreaming and aren't actually in the room at the time or something but you know while all that is being spoken we shift over to earl just silently listening to all of it you know he knows that they know things now but anyway on to the dossier for earl's time at project blue book uh gordon says records of his two-year hitch when the bureau loaned him out to the air force in 1965 is blacked out and you know linkages to briggs are noted because they're both connected to uh project blue book but then you know never cared much for the links preferred the patties but breakfast is a real good idea so you know that's kind of how they shift away from discussing more about um, Earl's background and shifting over to the point where they get to all go to the double R soon. But then, you know, Cole riffs on the bonsai tree and he shouts bonsai into the bonsai. And, uh, you know, Earl just says damnation. And like, you know, like tries to clean out his ears because they just got blasted. (laughs) And, you know, Leo burps and uh, it's just weird, weird physical comedy over there. You know, like what what that makes me remember is, um, you know, if you ever see the uh, video version of this podcast, you'll know about my bonsai pillow right over here uh, as drawn by Jess Purser, a fantastic artist who is all into the Twin Peaks. And uh, she she gave us the image of the bonsai tree uh, so that we could have a little bit more merch on our T public uh, page. And um, yeah, the. Uh, uh, I'll add a link to the um, the 25YL store um, in the show notes. And uh, yeah, you can take a look at this bonsai pillow <laughs> too. And uh, yeah, it's just fun. I like it. Um, but anyway, um, you know, they plan for the breakfast that Earl doesn't crash. Um, but, you know, the, he he also hears them reinstate Cooper officially. Uh, you know, Cole says to Cooper, You'd better dust off your own black suit. Uh, with Wyndham Earl running around the lo- uh, running around loose in the deck, we need you back in the team. And uh, yeah, that's how Cooper gets reinstated, and you know he gets the new ten millimeter Smith and Wesson pistol, etc. And um, they they say at this in unison, um, Gordon and Cooper pursue, capture, incarcerate. Thumbs up. So uh, <laughs> where does Earl go? Um, instead of the in instead of into the den with the with the double r um he goes to intercept audrey at the library and prepare her for queendom so last episode we saw earl disguise himself and get involved with donna obviously and then shelly over at the double r again um and then today in this episode we see him getting involved into audrey's business um, you know, staging the uh, the bump into dressed as Edward Perkins. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's at the library. 
she's initially charmed by him. You know, she tells him that she's doing research on civil disobedience. And he says, good for you. It's incumbent on the youth to disobey. So he passes himself off as a poetry teacher who has her read the poem that she wants him to help identify, which means that um, Donna's the only one who won't ever read this on camera for us. Um, but she says, see the mountains, guess I haven't, and the waves cost one another <laughs> in, the, uh, in the most plain way possible. Like She's not even interested in trying to figure out what the words mean necessarily. But then Earl finishes it with, what is all this sweet work worth if thou kissed not me? And, um, you know, Audrey's glad that he knows it. But, you know, immediately after that, she's creeped out and the tone shifts. Like, she starts to kind of see through his disguise, possibly because she's so used to being around her dad or the fact that she has her own way of keeping secrets. Um, you know, prudence, for one thing. You know, like, she understands disguises so she can spot one. Um, but you know, anyway, he says Shelley and then, you know, because it's, uh, it, you know, Shelley is the author of the poem, you know, then he says, you know, gazing at you, reciting the verse of Shelley, you look very much like a queen. And, you know, this is when she absolutely decides to get away. And, um, you know, he blows, uh, smoke rings from his pipe because, you know, poetry professors have pipes, even in libraries back in 1991. What was Earl's endgame there? Uh, to corrupt the annual event that kicks off spring, Miss Twin Peaks. And I did start to talk about this last time. You know, he's turning the year's marker of the change of seasons into something that demands a sacrifice. Um, and, you know, he's, he's essentially trying to subvert it as a magician. You know, as the magician longs to see and all that. You know, it's like he's already kind of hinted that it's all supernatural at this point. But, you know, he misses the mark on what the magician means. You know, he's not the kind that can long to see. Uh, so he'll be accessing the lodge with the wrong kind of intentions. It's right here in the subtext. Um, you know, his magicianship is more like parlor tricks and manipulations and, um, you know, coercing people into agreeing with him rather than actually convincing them to really believe and help him. You know, it's like Leo needs a shock collar to help him, um, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, it's like his magicianship is like card tricks. And we get card tricks right here with uh, Earl forcing Leo to choose three cards. And we get we get the three queens here. Um, you know, Queen Donna is on clubs. Queen Audrey is on diamonds, just like the Manchurian Candidate reference that they were referencing in uh, the One-Eyed Jack scenes when Audrey wore the Queen of Diamonds on her um, One-Eyed Jack's outfit. Uh, then we get Queen Shelley, who's on spades. And, um, you know, then after that, you know, can Leo find the king? And on the first try, he pulls out Dale on the king of spades. So, you know, <laughs> is this the show trying to reference that maybe uh, Shelley uh, has compatibility with lawmen and uh, they're both in spades? Yeah, who knows? Uh, it's probably just random. And the spade does look the coolest as far as um, the suits, as far as I can tell. Um, or it's the most classically, this is a card uh, kind of way to look at things. Um Earl pulls the fourth empty queen. You know, it's like there's no image of anybody's face. There's just an empty circle waiting for someone's face on the queen of hearts. 
And, um, you know, he pulls that and, uh, and he talks about the Miss Twin Peaks flyer, you know, and then he puts it in the empty square or the empty rectangle in the dead center of the Miss Twin Peaks flyer. So the Queen of Hearts is there as if just waiting for the person who's going to be Miss Twin Peaks. And he says, now, what do you get if you win? You get a dozen roses, scholarship to the college of your choice, the accolades of your peers, and I, yes, I know, you get to die. And that's when he puts the Queen of Hearts on the flyer. Um, Like he's pinning death to it now, uh, or the intention of death to it. Um, And he says, a royal execution. And he takes the Joker from the next, from the next, uh, from from his actual shirt collar he reaches behind him pulls the joker um and then places it on top of the queen and laughs so you know there's um there's a certain intent in the show that um we're doing a caesar romero impression uh with with being the joker from the 1960s batman series at least a little bit um and um you know then he says and cooper gets to watch and you know then he just does the laughing and it zooms in on the dale king of spades and then it cuts to commercial and right here it almost um it almost seems like you know turning it into a card trick turning it into the joker trying to do a card trick kind of thing uh that involves death um this could be kind of a microcosm of why Lynch feels, um, you know, kind of awkward about entering the lodge in a physical way. You know, it's like that, you know, pull, pulling, pulling off accessing the place uh, that is like the red room, um, is like a magic trick. You know, it's not actual magic to get in there. It's the way he's doing it is, um, like false. Um, I don't know. It's like, I I think, um, Lynch was only kind of ho-hum about accessing the lodge, you know, changing the mythology in that way. Um, we're not quite there yet. And he does go with it, obviously, because episode 29, he actually sends somebody in there, but you know, we need the stepping stones first to show that, you know, while Earl can get in there, um, his secrets are trying to cover over mysteries that can't be subverted for too long. But, you know, the next, um, what is it? The, uh, the next four episodes after this, um, you know, the, the whole point is that there's a literal physical path to a doorway that lets you in. And, um, Al cave really, uh, signifies you know, this actually happening. And, um, so, I mean, we got to ask, how does Al Cave reframe Twin Peaks' mythology? So, um, first of all, with Al Cave, Annie is involved. She's the first person to evoke it. So that extra classic diner scene with, um, Cooper's part, it begins on his napkin drawing of the, um, of the two tattoos, as he puts it. Um, and you know, Cooper drawing in a napkin reminds me a lot of Gordon drawing that deer like creature with the arm reaching for it, uh, right before he has a vision of Laura in season three. So, um, you know, there, there's a certain thing about, you know, doodling and, um, 
you know, getting on the path, you know, it's like, that's the kind of magicianship that, um, that, you know, really helps you navigate all that, uh, supernatural stuff. But, you know, Cooper's distracted here, um, right after he finishes drawing the doodle and, um, you know, there, there's a chickadee on the Dodge start, the joke with the penguins, the giggling. And then Annie looks down as they're all just having a happy moment all through the bar. And she says, um, I see the, I see you've been to Al cave. And then, um, you know, she basically turns and walks away and goes back to her job. And, you know, of course the music shifts at that point, you know, it's not that hook rug dance, uh, song about, you know, like happy, more innocent nostalgia, you know, now it's back to the, uh, the, the drony kind of darker themes in the score. But yeah, Annie thinks that those two tattoos combined, you know, it looks exactly like something in Al Cave. Um, you know, what he was actually doing at the time was quote unquote combining Major Briggs's tattoo with the log ladies. Um, though, you know, last episode, Briggs's tattoo was three triangles pointing toward each other, almost like a hazard symbol. Uh, or a radiation symbol, so it's kind of a circular way of looking at things. Um, but, you know, it doesn't exactly match what they're trying to do with this Owl Cave uh, doorway thing. So I believe it's been shifted, and, um, you know, it's now three diamonds in a vertical column. And, you know, I'm I'm sure either, either production just got mixed up and forgot, or um, what I suspect is that... Um, David Lynch doodled out the entire um, petroglyph while he was in playing Gordon Cole. And, um, you know, they, they didn't actually show the petroglyph in this episode. I bet he did it um, either before or after he filmed his scenes with Manchin Amick, um, you know, just so that there's something that um, that the show can use for the mythology. Um, and, you know, it kind of fits his sensibilities if it's just like random free drawing kind of things with like certain lodgy elements. But, you know, maybe, maybe I'm just giving too much credit there. And, um, you know, cause I mean, Mark Frost has a good handle on all the, uh, esotericism that he wants to explain too. So I wouldn't be shocked if it's kind of a little bit of both, but you know, either way, um, I don't think they were looking at, you know, Margaret's and the major's tattoos um, right then, or they just couldn't figure out how to do the circle triangles combined. But, you know, anyway, um, you could brush it off that way. But, you know, it could also, if you want to do it this way, it could explain a uh, shift in reality happening along with uh, Gordon's hearing fluctuations that, you know, like there was some kind of fundamental shift right there. And, um, it changed the kind of, um, lodginess in town in the way that, like, I wonder if Briggs's tattoo has changed, you know, it's like, they'll never look at that again, but I bet that, um, you know, it, it could also be something where, you know, Cooper's memory of it has changed as well, though I doubt it because he wrote it down on the chalkboard. So I think, you know, some kind of shift where, you know, they, they decided something different and, you know, hope that, you know, week to week viewers aren't going to pay any attention to that because those are the only kind of viewers you should count on back in 1991. But, you know, there's the whole thing about how, you know, sure, Cooper's just intuitively combining two elements that he's just seen recently. 
But Annie's reaction to it nails it down into something physical in town, too. So, you know, it's symbolic about, you know, a doorway into the lodge space. Um, you know, it's like uh, Cooper's intuition to just kind of mess around with two design elements um, is suddenly either now in reality or has always been in reality and he's just in sync with it. But yeah, she's clearly familiar with it. And then when Cooper shows Harry what he's been doodling, Harry says, this looks exactly like the one up at Al Cave. And um, I mean, I understand that Harry hadn't seen the drawing yet, but um, his reaction to it is almost like Albert Albert in uh, part 14 of season three saying, yes, I'm beginning to remember it too, uh, moment when um, when Gordon talks to him about a Jeffrey scene that he was in and that Albert also couldn't remember at the time until it was said aloud now. But, you know, if Harry had seen Cooper drawing it um, and didn't say anything about it, you know, it's like Harry's known about, well, I mean, really, either way, like whether he's seen the illustration or not, Harry has known about Owl Cave the entire time. You know, it has nothing to do with the fact that, you know, the writers just introduced a cave concept, um, you know, this episode, you know, <laughs> but like anytime owl imagery has ever come up in town, it's like, Maybe Al Cave would have been a thought to mention, you know, with uh, with all the, you know, where is Bob gone now? You know, it's like, oh, I don't know. There's this crazy cave called Al Cave. It could be interesting, <laughs> but, you know, whatever. But, you know, to break down everything that I just said, it's like, let, let's do it like this. Annie is familiar with a thing that could be seen as a continuity error or a reality alteration. And she leaves some breadcrumbs to where it can be found. Um, you know, this alone isn't suspicious, but when you pair it with everyone's lack of interest in her return uh, to where she grew up, um, uh, when you connect it to everyone's blatant disregard of her kidnapping at the end of episode 28 in episode 29, um, when you pair it with her ability to appear in the past, in, at least through dreams in fire walk with me for Laura. And, uh, when you combine it with the fact that she wasn't in the cast list for season three and her complete exclusion in secret history of twin peaks, you, you have a lot of questions to ask about Annie Blackburn. And, um, there are a good number of reasons why she might not even be human. So let's look at Annie a little bit. And, um, and bring up the article from uh, 25YL called Who's Annie that was written after Secret History came out, but before season three uh, by Lindsay Stamhuis and Aiden Hales of Bickering Peaks. So they ask, uh, I'm going to read a good quote from them. Uh, so who really is Annie Blackburn? She appears to be a woman with minimal ties to the town in which she, she grew up, and whose removal from it is strangely glossed over in the hours following her dramatic kidnapping. While she is in town, she acts strangely and falls in love quickly with our intrepid hero, setting him up for his ultimate tragic downfall. She seems tailor-made for him, a naive, beautiful, spiritually pure woman with a sad backstory, the perfect kind of damsel in distress that Agent Cooper can't seem to resist. And Lindsay and Aiden go into some more theories in this article. They they cover like 
a couple different permutations of how she could be connected to the lodges and or what kind of lodge entity she could herself be, which I'll explore as I go through the next episodes. But here I'll look at her in the way that she's a vessel used by the White Lodge. You know, she she's the next stone in a path began by the by the log lady Margaret and Major Briggs. You know, then based on the conversation at the Great Northern Bar, where Annie accepts Cooper's help, she kind of becomes a quest for Cooper. Um, you know, almost rather than being a person, she's like, you know, you can help me with this. And he says, I can help you with this. And, you know, like she goes through uh, details about her. And, you know, then he says, I accept, I accept, I accept. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, like she she's almost, um, you know, rather than being a person in a relationship, it's almost like, you know, like they've made a business decision to help her with her issues. And, um you know, this quest leads her to become the cause of and, you know, the literal thing to win back for Cooper going into the Red Room itself. And I know that the writers did install her as a damsel in distress, um, you know, to replace Audrey, probably uh, going into the lodge for, you know, the, the person that uh, Cooper is romantically entangled with. And, you know, in the Red Room, we will see the giant speaking backwards next to the man from another place as Cooper's uh, served some state-changing coffee. You know, because her supernatural path was began by Briggs and Margaret and ends in a place with the giant at, you know, at, with the giant at minimum observing Cooper, um, I can see plausibly in Annie being minimally programmed by the white lodge agents along you know along the same lines as a freddie sykes with the green glove who uh whose destiny it is to punch out bob you know i could see her being one of those kind of uh humans but i could also see her being kind of a lodge entity um you know like maybe a tulpa with a purpose um you know created created um for a purpose um so, yeah, I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of different ways to look at Annie. And, um, you know, I'm still giving her the benefit of the doubt of being a human, but I'm going to explore the ideas that um, she could be lodge-assisted or lodge-created, you know, just comparing theories. And, um, you know, who knows, maybe coming to a better understanding of her by the end of all this. Okay, well, now, um, now we're going to look quick at the Owl Cave scenes themselves to see what we can learn about Owl Cave and the mythology that's shifting. Um, okay, so Owl Cave is a place where beer drinkers go based on the, the bottles on the floor of the cave, you know, from the look of things, as, as far as Harry mentions. You know, in, in, <laughs> in previous productions where this Hollywood location was used, it's also where the Batmobile entered Gotham City from uh, on the exterior shot of the Batcave. Uh, but, you know, here uh, in in continuity, it's also where Hawk used to play when he was a kid. And, you know, they pretended that it was haunted by fierce ghosts, which, you know, who knows, maybe it was. But, you know, the the um, the cave itself was introduced with a scene of a cave wall with Andy's arm reaching in the shot for, you know, trying to grab hold of things. So, like, you know, there's yet again one arm reaching through you know, like from off camera to get a hold in camera, uh, just like, you know, Jones's arm reaching through to get Harry 
Um, just like, you know, we'll see Bob reaching through and in episode 27 at the end, you know, it's, it's a thing. It's a, it's an interesting, um, visual motif that Twin Peaks does. And, you know, at the beginning, we're barely seeing the characters of Cooper, Harry, uh, Andy and Hawk, you know, it's like, we see their light beams and we see the darkness of the cave and we like maybe see their silhouettes at the beginning. So, you know, that's also kind of thematically neat. And, you know, what they do is they head deeper into the cave to find the symbols. And uh, Cooper waxes poetic when they find it. You know, two symbols combined into a larger whole. But for what purpose? And, um, you know, of course, this is the um, the moment also. Um, well, no, that's a little later. Okay, so he says, two symbols combined into a larger whole. But for what purpose? Well, it's to the purpose that we'll know soon is to signify a doorway per the Glastonbury Grove portal later. Um, you know, Briggs and the Log Lady, uh, science plus spirituality, those uh, those two tattoos combined gives a certain access to understanding because um, one of them is science, one of them is spirituality, and that's a good balance of things. And that's why Cooper's in a good place to find this. You know, he says tattoos are the question. This must be the answer. And um, yeah, it was led into like how I said, you know, science plus spirituality led the way. And, you know, the, that particular combined tattoo in the uh, on the cave wall, there's a fire symbol at the very top of the uh, the top diamond, which hums that Lodgy hum once people recognize that it's there. Um, you know, once they shine a little bit of light on it, it's like, did it need that light to energize? And, you know, was uh, because of the hum on this, was that why Cooper's memory of Briggs' symbol changed? Um, was it willing this to happen? Um, was he being led here? You know, regardless of why uh, that change happened, which I'll, I'll promise I'm putting it down now. Um, when, when that hum begins, we see an owl above. Um, the owl seems to notice that the light is shining on the fire symbol that is still humming and the owl lets out a cry. And, um, you know, whether it's the same owl or a different owl that's been called, um, there's an owl inside there with them in the cave, kind of attacking them, or at least, you know, like flying at them. And, um, Andy's pickaxe, uh, swings and connects to the center of that fire symbol. And, um, you know, once again, Andy is accidentally triggering something supernatural without the intent to do so. You know, the, the second diamond uh, pushes out of the wall. That's the one that's in with the trees. The, yeah, the, uh, of, you know, the, the, the rock in the center of that diamond on the cave drawing, yeah, on the cave wall drawing, um, pushes out. It reveals a hole, like a, a, a carved out hole revealing a post with a symbol on it of the traditional owl ring symbol that, you know, you see in all the, um, the green ring and, um, in fire walk with me, that thing. Um, but you know, you look closer and you see like deep inside the, the post is surrounded by another fire symbol drawn in like kind of behind it. And, um, if you look at it as if the symbol were a map, and those diamonds signify levels of reality. The fire is at the top. Then there's a top diamond that could represent where the White Lodge is. Then the level below it 
is the one that the Owlring post is on, and that's the one nested in between the uh, the Margaret part of the tattoo, the uh, the the two mountains, um, and the diamond could represent the uh, you know the portal access into the red room, and the diamond itself could act, could signify the red room or the waiting room, and um, you know the the diamond below the mountains could represent the black lodge you know the states of reality and the mountains are on the middle one and this is when cooper says that extra classic line fellas coincidence and fate figure largely in our lives it appears to be a petroglyph harry i have no idea where this will lead us but i have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange and um it's literally an inversion of uh judge sternwood's words earlier in season two when he's talking about valhalla and everything um you know how the the area around twin peaks is both strange and wonderful so you know it's like i wonder if uh, they did it just because it sounds better or because of the inversion is kind of interesting that way and you know again it could be why the tattoos change it could be why um you know, Cooper is fixated on the term the Black Lodge um, because I know Earl is fixated on the Black Lodge, but um, Cooper doesn't have to be. He could be um, calling it the the Black Lodge and the White Lodge. You know, it's like he could be focused on other things, too. But, you know, his inverted language um, kind of sets the table for the fact that he's also going to be focused on finding the Black Lodge or, you know, getting getting to the doorway before Earl does at least or something. Um, but you know, the, the inversion of the, the wonderful and strange thing right there is, uh, a nice accidental or purposeful touch. But at this point we get the outside shot of Al cave with the police cruiser near the maw. And, um, you know, an owl flies from the cave with a cry and, um, it doesn't seem like it's afraid of something here. It um it kind of seems like, well, my job's done and I'm telling everybody, you know, it's like I have served my purpose. Um, but, um, you know, that's where we leave Owl Cave for the lawman. And, um, you know, next thing we see is Cooper meeting Annie at the Great Northern, um, you know, having their conversation at the bar. And then once they once they make their agreement, we don't get to see any or, you know, once. um Annie agrees to accept Cooper's help. The next thing that um, that we see is a cut over to the light that Earl is using to um, explore the petroglyph, and you know he connects, and Earl connects the imagery um, found that the you know that Cooper and the guys were looking at with um, with some illustration on the wall exactly. Um, exactly behind where he is exactly on the opposite wall from where um andy's pickaxe got stuck and um you know earl says you know the symbol could it be and he looks around you know because he knows what these symbols mean apparently um he studied them enough with his blue book work probably and you know all his esoteric work since you know when he sees the illustrations on the opposite wall he says yes the symbol inverted and he laughs and um then he decides to turn the post counterclockwise. And um, after he does turn it, there's the sound of gravel. And um, 
you know, Andy's pickaxe begins to loosen and the hum of that fire symbol is back. And um, the pickaxe just like projects out like it gets shot out, um, you know, from the pressure behind it. And, um, you know, the fire symbol is now unimpeded. And then the gravel starts falling everywhere, even over, even across where the lever post is from where the camera is. And, you know, it goes to credits. And, um, you know, I'm not going to fault the bad special effects because I know that um, even even back when Earl was um, was just getting cast, um, you know, they were basically out of money <laughs> for, you know, um, high production values. So, you know, they kind of work with what they got and, you know, it gets a little Nickelodeon style. But, uh, you know, I, I whatever. I mean, that's just a, that's just a behind the scenes money issue rather than intent. You know, they did the best with what they got. And, um, you know, why not make a pour of gravel that kind of symbolizes how water flows, too? Um, you know, like uh, it, it almost mirrors the shot of the, uh, the close-up waterfall that they use as transition shots here and there. Why might the petroglyph have actually revealed itself to Earl rather than Cooper? Um, you know, Cooper didn't know where it was going to go. He just knew that it would be a place both wonderful and strange. So he um, he knew that it would have a balance, and he didn't pick a side. Whereas Earl knew which side he wanted a destination to, and he wanted to lead, um, you know, he, he wanted something to lead him there. And that's what he got when he turned the uh, the symbol. You know, it could be that simple why it had to be Earl to do this final step of getting the information of the petroglyph. But before we go, let's take a look at the actual owl cave symbol. Um, you know, it's like, I know the ring version had an extra branch on one of its, um, on one of its wing things. Um, or, you know, like maybe just, uh, you know, an extra mark. Um, but you know, I'm, I, I contest that could have easily just been a physical imperfection made on the prop when it was created, um, you know, rather than an intentional detail that Lynch added then. But, you know, who knows? Um, you know, did he did he think it just looked cool and he left it? Or was there a reason why there'd be an extra branch off of it? And, like, literally they are different symbols. But in this case, I'm connecting them as the same thing. You know, the, the nuance there can be discussed in Firewalk with me. And, you know, I know there's a possibility that it could be connected to the Odell rune that the, uh, that the Nazis used back in, or that, you know, they, uh, they kind of repurposed the rune, you know, back when World War II was happening. And it could be like one of those kind of connections. Um, or it could have just been happenstance. I know, I know Mark Frost has been asked it and he kind of does like these, um, these non-committal uh, puns around it, so you know, like I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go for author authorial intent that it's actually connected to the Odell rune, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's a certain adjacency to it, considering that Earl uses it to connect to a Black Lodge place. But um, you know what I do know about the owl ring or the owl cave symbol is um in in my uh in my 25yl article i i it's uh, well yeah in the in the article titled how do or what do we know about the owl ring um 
I, I basically broke it down to the ring having these three properties. Um, okay, so the owl ring is a portal to the waiting room. And in this case, it's um, the key to a map to get to the place. So like in a physical way, it's also kind of leading the way to the waiting room. The, the symbol channels power into you to achieve your highest ambition. And it begins reabsorbing that power the moment that your ambition is achieved. And, you know, this is referencing a lot of stuff that we learn about uh, in Secret History of Twin Peaks and um, how we see it used uh, sparsely in all of Lynch's stuff in Fire Walk With Me and in uh, in season three. So, yeah, I mean, um, in its first use here, it doesn't necessarily fit in with ambition other than it was Earl who revealed the thing, which means that you have to have an intention behind your fire when you're choosing uh, black or white lodges. But, you know, the, the symbol is still tied to making the lodges into a place that you can go physically, you know, rather than a state that you can be near when you dream or, you know, when you wear the stuff. Um you can kind of access it through your own soul or something, you know, like being channeled through the, the, the jade part of the ring. But yeah, like I, like I said, you know, there, there's an intentionality to which one you can get to, but I think, I think, um, accessing the waiting room is definitely an intention for this symbol. And, you know, who knows, like it was even revealed with, um, with Andy's action of protection rather than, um, anything cooper did you know andy hit the fire that made the post appear and then earl is the one who did the job so you know it's like who knows maybe maybe that whole uh that whole theory that um that jc hotchkiss has where um where cooper died at the end of season one and like he's uh finding his way through some kind of bardo right here it's like maybe he wasn't able to do any of these steps you know it's like um Briggs and Margaret started it by giving him the imagery. Annie sent him here. Um, Andy is the one with the pickaxe who made the post come out. And then Earl is the one who revealed the pickaxe. I mean, uh, the, the, peck, the pickaxe, the petroglyph. And, um, you know, it's like Cooper technically has just been an observer through this whole thing. So, uh, you know, JC, she's got something that, um, you know, still kind of holds up fairly well, even though I don't believe it. <laughs> Uh, but you know, anyway, that's, that's where we're going to end this episode because, you know, we don't even get to see the petroglyph yet. That's next episode. As far as right now, I'm going to give you the sign off. So you have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and 25YL Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod, on Counter Social at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, on Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore the underscore Peaky on Instagram. Uh, you can visit ruminationsradio.com for additional great shows such as Cinephile Hissy Fit and Ruminations from the Red Room. And join all the hosts from Ruminations Radio Network, myself included, on our Discord channel, Ruminations Radio Cafe. You can find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles, including my full electricity nexus column, at 25yearslatersite.com 
and join us on Discord at 25YL, a Twin Peaks server. If you want to be part of our next mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com or connect with us on any of the social medias. And we'll see you next time as we look at episode 26, the 27th overall episode of Twin Peaks. We're getting to the end, folks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. It's a way to kind of deepen and expand deepen the universe that the show takes place The show takes place